Hello to all our listeners, subscribers around the world. We so appreciate uh, you tuning in and taking time out of your busy schedules. You know, because you're listeners, you know that this podcast is focusing on process and what kind of processes work best to actually bring people together across the divides of difference. And, you know, the thing is that nobody really pays attention to process. It's a little bit like plumbing, you know? It's one of those things that you don't really pay attention to until it stops working, and then you really pay attention to it. And that's pretty much the case with process. I started this podcast because I know from my experience and I know from talking to a lot of other people like uh, Sandra Janoff and Future Search, Harrison Owen, the Public Conversations Project, a lot of people who we have interviewed on this podcast, that if you create the right container, if you create the right ingredients, good meeting conditions, you get the right stakeholders in the room, all of those things, you can actually make a huge progress at helping people uh, bridge differences that seem unbridgeable. At the moment, I think certainly in the United States and probably around the world, because the United States casts such a big shadow, uh, there's a general perception, and you'll often hear, oh my God, Washington is broken. People commenting on the polarization in our system of government in Washington and that it's Many people will roll their eyes, express despair. And of course, we have, you know, we had a huge government shutdown. So because of this, I was really interested when Rob Fersh came across my radar as somebody, he doesn't like this phrase, mediating public policy, but I kind of heard it that way, uh, that he has created an organization called Convergence that does just that. It works for consensus. It builds consensus. It does creative problem solving. It brings stakeholders together uh, to work across the divides and sometimes extremely polarized points of view around um, the issues of the day. So Convergence deals with issues, has done initiatives around healthcare, education, incarceration, I think not yet around, but exploring gun safety, climate change, things like that, large public policy issues. So I'll tell you that Convergence has been around for 10 years. Rob is the president and founder. And formally, it says uh, it was founded in 2009 to promote consensus solutions to issues of domestic and international importance. Immediately prior, Rob served as the U.S. country director for Search for Common Ground an international conflict resolution organization uh, where he directed national policy uh, consensus projects on health care coverage for the uninsured and U.S. Muslim relations. I'll, of course, put his bio up on the site, and you'll see that he's had many years of immediate experience himself working in Washington um, for many organizations, especially around the issue of hunger. I think what stands out to me is how committed Rob is to his neutrality. I mean, no one, as he says, no one can really be neutral, but really being a presence, uh, taking a stand for uh, neutrality, for bringing people together across the divides, uh, to recognizing the decency in human beings, regardless of their point of view. And for seeing how often when they actually build a relationship with each other, uh, they discover that they can actually be not only have a good relationship, but they can even be very good friends. So he's going to tell you on this episode a number of uh, stories, anecdotes of Convergence's experience around this that I think you will really enjoy. And I will also say that um, while I think Rob has built up a really uh, strong program, I am sure that uh, more funding would be make it that much stronger and be so great to see our government spending more of its dollars on things like this. 57%, 57 cents on every dollar is going to the military. And um, I think we could be spending that money in ways that are that is building a lot more peace on our planet. So um, on that note, I bring you Rob Fersh. Enjoy. 
So, Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. You um, are really a great person to find. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is I find people that I didn't know anything about before. So I'm very glad to find you. And I wondered if we could start. It's always interesting to hear from people a little bit about the highlights of their story, how you got to where you are at current day at Convergence, and you know what planted the seeds in you to be, um, I don't know, I don't know if you call yourself a peace builder, a conflict resolution person, a consensus, I mean, I'm interested in that too. What do you call yourself? <laughs> well, first, thank you for the opportunity to be with you. It's a pleasure to be on the show and uh, I look forward to a great conversation. You know, I, I call myself different things, I guess, depending on the audience and what works. Uh, I'm a collaborative problem solver. I'm a consensus builder, a public policy mediator. Uh, depends on what language works for people. There's a lot of stories I could tell you about the origins. I could start with being the middle child of three with two sisters on either side. Oh, that'll do it right there. <laughs> I have an older, younger sister, and we all get along quite well, but I'm in the middle. Um, how, how did that uh, give us just you know, a thought or two. How do you think that affected you and brought you into a place of being a consensus builder? Do you think, is there a connection? I mean, you certainly mentioned it. I don't actually think it's so much because of uh, my sisters, but I, I always, I've been a mediator at heart since I'm a kid. I have a friend I, I met the first day of kindergarten in Poughkeepsie, New York, who called me the Henry Clay of the Krieger School Playground. So I was a great compromiser, whatever, by nature. Uh, who knows? Um, what those early influences are, but it just, just tell people who Henry Clay is. Because... Henry Clay was a famous member of Congress from Kentucky who was known as the Great Compromiser, and I guess someone who cut the deals back then. And I'm actually working now with a member of Congress who holds that seat, so there's a nice legacy uh, to that. So, so you don't have any memories of being a kid, and what inspired you to play that role, or what you know, what role models you were looking at, or you think it was just inherent to you, or you, or where did it come from? I honestly, I just think it's always been inherent to me as someone who uh, always saw both sides. I mean, when I was a kid, and we'd have heated arguments on the ball field about was the runner safe or out, no matter what team I was on, someone would always call on me because I would be honest about what the truth was in between the arguments. So I think it's just temperamentally how what I was born into, and I think it's naturally who I am. Although my career did veer from this for a while, for quite a while, I was in the world of advocacy, which I did love, and I felt there were issues I really wanted to advocate about. As a lawyer or, or uh, well, exactly what capacity? I, I have a law degree. Mm -hmm. I've never really practiced law. I did run um, what's considered the leading uh, progressive advocacy group on the issue of hunger in America for 12 years and okay. very much pursued a progressive agenda. On the other hand, um, I always wanted to work bipartisan in doing so. And uh, even when I took, <laughs> when I was offered the job originally, I was 35, I, I said, actually, I don't think I can go there. You guys seem to be a little too strident for me, a little too ends justify the means. And they said, well, actually, if we make you the president of the organization, you can change the tone. So I said, oh, okay. So maybe I'll try that. So I think it's just built into me. Um, and then I would simply also say that at one point in my life, I thought that morality itself required me to be a progressive and a liberal or my religion, I'm Jewish, required me to be a progressive. But I kept meeting people with such great decency. I actually wanted to solve problems, but just saw the world differently. And that experience changed me, and it made me want to start something in D.C. where people of different points of view but genuine concern for solving problems could have a place to sit down and talk to each other. And some of that experience was forged working on Capitol Hill. I did staff bipartisan efforts in, for three different congressional committees, probably most notably on the Senate side when I worked for Senator Pat Leahy, working closely with Bob Dole on nutrition issues. Senators, uh, United States senators. I'm just saying that, clarifying that, because so much of our audience is not from the United States. Ah, fair enough. Fair enough. And then not everyone knows all these names. Senator Pat Leahy is still there. He's a senator from the state of Vermont. Correct. Mm -hmm. And Senator Bob Dole, who uh, ran for president, was Senate Majority Leader from Kansas. Um, I mean, these people work well together, and I saw that they actually shared goals, and sometimes disagreed on how to get there, but the decency was there. 
And then I worked for um, Representative Leon Panetta when he was a congressman. He's since been Secretary of Defense of the United States, and head of the CIA, and other positions. And we worked bipartisan on hunger and nutrition issues in the United States. And again, working with a, a late Congressman Bill Emerson, a, such a decent, fine, compassionate human being that I began to see it wasn't a ma- matter of compassion, uh, whether you were li- if you're liberal, compassionate, conservative, you weren't. You just saw the world differently. And so once you have that veil lifted and you see the humanity of people, I think stereotype them and dismiss one point of view or not. And so my commitment is now to really be, uh, you know, someone who brings the other different sides. And if we reach a consensus or a win-win kinds of ideas, then everybody's better off. And usually the ideas are better than what anyone started with. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the United States is a role model for a lot of the world and sometimes not. And also casts a very large, uh, has a lot of influence, casts a large shadow, all those things. And you have taken on the role with Convergence. Maybe you should describe exactly what Convergence is all about and, and why you saw the need to actually get it going. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, I think basically, um, and this was happening to me in the late 1990s, I couldn't live the cognitive dissonance really of, you know, choosing my friends based on politics as opposed to character. And, and I began to see that I was constantly being set up as a liberal advocate to debate people. People wanted me to debate. And, you know, in some ways, the crisper and sharper I was in presenting my point of view, the happier media people were. Well, I was invited to seminars where the whole idea was, well, let's hear from the left, let's hear from the right, let's summarize the differences. It is a, it is a dilemma of our media that kind of, if it bleeds, it leads kind of idea that they, exactly. they really like polarization. It, it somehow, I think it, it makes, what, makes ball games, sells media, sells TV time? I don't know, but it's... Uh, I, I guess. Well, we want to work on that. Maybe we'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that two people I ended up debating as a liberal advocate in the mid-90s. I found to be such decent, thoughtful people. I was presenting the, cons- uh, the progressive side. They were staunch conservatives. And then we ended up becoming friends, and then, then later, later both have served on the board of Convergence. So what I think we saw and what we're trying to uniquely fill here is the need to, to build deep relationships of trust and understanding amongst people who agreed on goals, whether it's to increase economic mobility for people, we have a project about to report on how on the reentry of prisoners into society. We have left and right agreeing on a series of ideas. Whether it's on healthcare, we've had a, where we had a big impact. I saw that there was no place for people to really sit down and get to know each other. Even groups that worked sort of bipartisan, and I love and respect them all. We work with all of them. Don't have the methodology where they actually engage the full person. Uh, oftentimes those people meet occasionally, the staff figures it out, they ask people to sign on to something. We literally try to create a relationship of such trust that these people talk to each other differently during our process, but they also relate to differently afterward. And I, I guess I should mention our flagship project, which we just spun off as an independent nonprofit, has been on K-12 through education. And literally a people who never would have talked to each other, teachers unions and charter school networks, uh, along with school administrators and technology companies, after a very rough first meeting, ended up forming a vision for what K through 12 education could be. And now they've spun off an organization that's getting money from left and right because they have a shared vision that excites virtually everybody. So we think it's possible and it's really for us a big um, proof point of our methodology. So uh, this is super exciting, and I guess as a facilitator myself and as somebody who's worked with a lot of groups in conflict, I, I am a big believer that creating the right kind of, I call it a container, is absolutely critical to what actually happens between human beings. And just to back you up a step, it sounds like you were engaged with a lot of bipartisan conversations, and yet you didn't see that there was this kind of forum that you wanted that would actually help people really bridge the divide, really build relationships, really see the humanity in each other so that they would be able to um, transcend differences, if you will. Yes. I I would say, look, when I started this journey, which is now 20 years ago, it wasn't fully formed. I couldn't see where it was going to go. I started to talk to 
you know, leading voices and practitioners in the, in the field. Uh, early on, a, a fellow by the name of Mark Gerzon was a mentor to me, uh, John Steiner, Bill Urey, other people I would talk to. And so the whole methodology we have has evolved over time. But I'll tell you one thing that I understood uh, when I worked on the House side, House of Representatives for then Leon Fanata chaired a subcommittee. He and his ranking Republican member on the committee, uh, that was, they were in the minority, we held field hearings around the country. And I think that bonded them as human beings. And I saw the trust that was developed. And even though they brought a different perspective, one favoring more government interference or government role, not interference, um, the other much more private sector oriented, they, they went out and they learned together. And when you learn together, you expand your mind and sometimes get you out of the rut of whatever your particular paradigm is, and you have new information. The fight mode <laughs> right. or the win, the win mode. Yeah. Right. And so there's new information you both have to adjust to. So that was a big Thing for me, and that's something we've incorporated here. A lot of learning goes on where people, first of all, they learn because they hear from people in a way that's in a setting they can just trust them and, and listen in a way they don't have to actually win the debate. And there's often kind of a feeling of people who still hold on to their views, but then they hear something and they say, Well, I, gee, I never thought of that. Well, when that happens, then a doorway opens to potentially adjust your viewpoint without relinquishing your principles. So that was a very important lesson for me about the power of personal relationships and trust that allows people to have conversations and opens, I'm sure neurologically there's all the evidence, that opens your pathways to allow you to see things differently and potentially expand your worldview. So I wonder, you know, I, I was just uh, interviewed Melanie Greenberg and we were talking about, I think you know her name. Uh, I, know, I know Melanie. She know was, Melanie. That's great. Um, and we were talking about, you know, she was talking about her early exposure to the legal system, and I related to it, you know, because it, of course, is called the adversary system. And as she described it, it's antagonistic by design. And I'm sure you are working with a lot of people who are trained as American lawyers, I would guess. I think Washington is filled with American lawyers. And, and I know from working a lot of negotiations and mediation that lawyers can be the best problem solvers in the world sometimes. And they can also be trained to be adversaries. <laughs> and it sort of depends a little bit on the personality sometimes. Yeah. But I'm hearing what you're doing at Convergence is, I'm guessing you have a lot of lawyers in your, you put a lot of lawyers into these containers that you're creating, I'm guessing. Yes. And do you find them to be great problem solvers or do you find them to be stuck in their adversarial training? You know, Susan, I don't even know necessarily who the lawyers are. Um, so many people in Washington move from law to policy. I think probably some lawyers are a little more drawn to that. But to be honest, the predominant ethic in Washington is, is the adversarial model. I'm a Democrat. I need to win. I'm a Republican. I need to win. That's the mindset people start with. They don't understand there is an alternative. And what's amazing is the transformation that goes on. Not for everybody. I don't want to overstate this, but as again, the veil gets lifted, all of a sudden they see each other differently. I mean, we have a famous story in our education project where we had two participants, I think neither one lawyers. Uh, one is a head of a conservative foundation in San Francisco, uh, libertarian by her own beliefs, very strong will, very opinionated. And we put her at a table with a vice president of the NEA for 35 years, a middle school teacher, I think in Pittsburgh. And they couldn't have had more diametrically opposed views about education. One skeptical of public education, upset with teachers' unions on their role. The other, you know, skeptical of the charter school networks. And over time, they just developed such a bond. They felt they just learned so much from each other that eventually even had a joint speaking engagement and went out together. And at the end of the conclusion, they literally said in front of the group that uh, they loved each other, that they loved learning from each other, they still disagreed. And so the mindset they came in, which was adversarial, you know, changed. I can tell you another story. There's one with a lawyer and a non-lawyer where we had participants in our economic mobility project where we had a terrific uh, participant from the Walmart company. And we had someone from a legal center that has been watching Walmart like a hawk for years. Mm -hmm. And uh, by her own telling, uh, the lawyer who was skeptical of Walmart, and you know, understandably so, just described how she began to see this woman from Walmart differently and they bonded and they shared ideas and 
you know, literally got in front of our group one day to talk about what they were reporting out. And the woman from the legal center said, well, I was getting in the room. I was going to watchdog this woman. I was out, you know, I'm worried about Walmart. And then they looked at each other and they spontaneously put their heads together, kind of hugged each other to say, you know what? We share the same goals for workers and we are sitting in different places, but we respect each other. And it was a lovely thing to see. It doesn't mean that every issue got resolved, but they're at a different level of conversation because they've had a chance to hear and see each other. And we do create, getting back to your point, a container that allows that. Not everybody. Some people start as enemies and lead as enemies. But if you have ground rules, if you have trust, if you try to get underneath all the positioning to your underlying fears and concerns and interests, um, more often than not, people will find that they're really not enemies. They just have different worldviews. And they, that opens their hearts a little bit more to the other person. Yeah, um, you, in some ways, I also had Bob Staines on the show from the Public Conversations Project oh. uh, in Boston. They were dealing with the abortion issue when it was very, very violent. Yes. And they, they brought uh, pro-life and pro-choice people together. Ultimately, those folks became such incredibly good friends, and I don't think any of them changed their point of view, but they became very good friends, yeah. uh, which was really interesting. They just had these dialogues over time. I wanted you to, because one of the things that we really focus on in this podcast is the how, yeah. if you could dig in a little bit more into the process and how you're creating this container, what I'm calling a container, you may not like that language or you may not use it, but you know how you're getting people engaged to participate with you, uh, how you're getting them to offer their time, why are they interested, you know, then what do you do next? What's the room look like? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we like uh, for you to paint as much of a picture as you can about the how you are actually doing this. Happy to do so. And if you want to break it up a little bit, because it's, you know, there's a lot of pieces to it. You know, so first of all, in some ways, it's like, who the heck are we? You know, why come to our table? And the truth is that people are stymied. Um, they're often frustrated. I once was meeting with an old liberal advocate and he was doing great work on, um, you know, youth employment. And he looked at me and says, boy, you used to be a great liberal advocate. What happened to you? Why are you doing this work? So I said to him, well, how's your work going? He says, it's going well, but, you know, I'm, I'm not getting my agenda done. And he, I said, well, what, what's the problem? He says, well, people disagree with me. So I laughed. I said, aha, that's where I come in. Because when people disagree, then progress doesn't yeah, get don't made. Don't you hate that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here's the point. A number of people uh, still think they've got all the truth. And then, it's, and then you kind of say, well, how's that working for you to just put your truth out there and not talk to the other side? So some of it's out of frustration. And some of it's just, you know, we get some people to buy in uh, who have enough weight that other people just feel they have to be at a table. But let me start with first things first. The first thing is, is to find a, a problem that everyone agrees is a problem. To the extent you have a shared goal, and you frame it in a way that's inviting to all sides. Like, have, like what could that be? Could you give us an example? So to give you a good example would be we just are finishing work on a project on economic mobility. Well, in the beginning, some people said, well, why don't you work on economic inequality? And what do you mean by economic mobility? That people are able to advance through, you know, different, uh, through class and right. different income levels and... And our focus was how to ensure that people at the lower end of the income scale would have an opportunity. There's a lot of studies that show that people, this new generations aren't necessarily going to make as much money as their parents, aren't as, don't get out of the, uh, their own um, quintile in terms of income, all sorts of barriers that people face to moving up in the world. So we originally began to test, um, okay, we might work on economic inequality. Well, that to some people on the right, smacked of redistribution of income. They didn't like that term. But everyone agreed, everyone's concerned left and right about people who are stuck in poverty or don't have opportunities to move up or getting out of prison and don't have job opportunities. And people of goodwill on all sides agree with uh, that that should be a goal. Some might put more on personal responsibility, some more on business, some on government. But people agreed it's a, it's a big problem. The growing inequality of the country is a big problem. And you know, one way to actually deal with that, although that wasn't the central goal, was to say, okay, even if you don't agree necessarily in, a, in, in the frame of equality, maybe that scares you, we all agree everyone should be able to pursue the American dream. So that was a unifying framing, and it came from 
we're talking to people and we've got great advisors uh, to Convergence. Uh, a gentleman spent 35 years at the Heritage Foundation, who now is at Brookings. But is, is and maybe say something about the Heritage Foundation yeah. for those who don't know it. I keep forgetting. So Heritage Foundation is a, a longstanding, very conservative foundation you know, uh, here in D.C. They have had a long history of uh, promoting conservative ideas. And for a period of time, they did seem to get somewhat more politicized. So I'll leave to others to comment about that. But our colleague and uh, a gentleman who's both a board member and a fellow here, Stuart Butler, has been a great wise guide to us about how do we frame issues so conservatives can hear it. And my own instincts and others, I think, understand better how the liberal world is. But then we go out and test it. So let me, let me frame the larger methodology and then we can dig in. There's lots of issues where the country's divided. We're not making progress right now. We're divided on health care. We're divided on on other issues we're working on, such as incarceration. Uh, we've worked on the issue of long-term care for the elderly and disabled, which is uh, uh, an issue that's been stuck. How about uh, uh, gun violence? We are looking into now whether we could take on um, and whether we call it. So maybe we may be calling it gun safety as a way of making sure, mm -hmm. sure people come to the table. We're actually researching that. So no matter what, there's a lot of issues, and we have another dozen, climate change, immigration, you name it, we haven't done yet. Then we try to think through who would need to talk to whom to make a difference. And we try to then assemble a small kind of anchor group of what I would call stakeholders or advisors, and they begin to identify who we should talk to. And normally we will do interviews. It could be 50, 100, 125 interviews to try to map who believes what, understand who might be a great stakeholder, try to figure out what level of people are going to get science. We really get CEO level science. We can't. But in that process, build trust with us. We have to be trusted that we're honest brokers, that we listen to people. And then when we write up what we learn, they see reflected back the fact that we're just trying to you know, show what everybody thinks. How do you build trust in your neutrality, given that you're describing yourself as more on the liberal bent of things? Well, I'm describing it to you as a matter of honesty, but I'm out in the world now as a neutral. Most people, when I talk to them, either think I'm neutral or think I believe in their side because I'm listening to them and my commitment is there. No one's fully neutral. So I have a history of being progressive. I don't hide that. But in my day-to-day -day job, my commitment is to be trusted by everybody. And if I violate that, I can't do my job and I'm committed to it. Mm -hmm. And I try to live that every day. And we all have our biases and that's why we surround ourselves with people on the left and right to make sure that we don't go off the rails inadvertently and why we have a board that's bipartisan. And, and we even, as we pick issues and reach out to people, we're as balanced as we possibly can be. So that's our commitment. Um, and so you, you can work here, you can be a liberal, you can be a conservative and work here as long as you're committed to the larger value of, of being an honest broker. So to return to the larger narrative, it's we do our homework, so we begin to map the field, understand who the right stakeholders might be, understand what all the sub-issues are that we need to be discussed, and then we also have to see if there's money to support it. Sometimes people come to us with funding, and that's great. We can just go ahead and do it. In some cases, the stakeholders have money. If they have business interests or unions, in some cases, we'll put money in. In some cases, we're just hat in hand going to foundations or to individual donors. So we have to make and, sure. And uh, Rob, how do you deal with that? I mean, doing a certain amount of mediation throughout my years, you know, I, I, it was always a, a trick to get, often, for instance, inside an organization, the organization was going to pay for it, but was it like a, had to be clear with them that just because they were footing the bill does, did not mean that, uh, you know, those of us that were in the neutral role were necessarily going to lean yeah. towards their side of things. How do you deal with that issue? Well, we have to be assiduous about either getting balanced funding of people who disagree or funding from sources generally, you know, big foundations that are seen as pretty neutral. Yeah. And we make sure that there's no strings attached to it. And in some cases, enough of our tenure, now we just turned 10 in um, April of 2000. Happy birthday. Thank you. Just a week ago for, mm -hmm. for this interview. And so we now also have a reputation that we can go on a bit. And it's a, tough, it's a tough thing because most people don't fund process. Most people fund the results they want, whether they're individual. Most people don't care or don't even think about process, honestly, they, they, or they don't notice it so much. They notice it when it's not working, but they don't necessarily identify it as a process issue. Uh, well, they think the world ought to be a certain way. Let me fund the people who are going to make it that way. Mm -hmm. But actually, once people go through our experience, they get excited about it. Sometimes they even come back to say, would you do another project with us or for us? And we've had that 
happen with foundations and with individual stakeholders who have been influential and brought back new projects to us to say, hey, well, now we really need to get together on this. We did long-term care. Let's go do health care. Okay, so just so I'm, so I'm getting clear about this process, how long is it likely to take? And uh, I mean, I guess you left off at your pulling, you're mapping stakeholders. Yeah. So and- also it depends on, <laughs> is it somebody doing as 20% of their job or can we get somebody on it full time? But normally we'd, I'd say we spend about six months. Once we figure out that there's an issue that's promising, we probably spend four to six months researching, interviewing people, trying to create a map. Then we take a few months to organize the table and get people to come to the table. And then there's this, uh, a dialogue process. Every project's different, but on average, probably about a year and a half, but most two years. If it's all DC-based, it might be once a month for six hours. Normally, we meet about every three months, usually bring people in for two days at a time so they can break bread together and sleep on it and get a lot done in two days because if they're putting all that energy in, sometimes traveling in. So what do you actually do? Like, what kind of a space do you have? Yeah, how are you creating a, a climate and a setting? The climate is much more about, I think, uh, and we bring in outside facilitators who are great. And we sometimes facilitate our own, but usually bring it outside. The atmosphere and climate is very much more, I think, about the conversations. I mean, we're a nonprofit that's not uh, rich, so we often try to get pro bono space. We try to get a beautiful meeting room where maybe there's room for a breakout. Occasionally, we'll go to a retreat center. It's a big deal. A project I co-directed years ago on U.S.-Muslim relations just before starting Convergence. We had you know, Madeleine Albright and Ambassador Dennis Ross at the table. We had Republican, former Republican members of Congress. Uh, we had 11 members of the, America, uh, the Muslim American community. We had a former director of the American Israel APAC uh, group. And, you know, we had a little more resources then, and we went to a, a nicer retreat, retreat center where people could really wind down. And I believe in that. But if you don't have a lot of money, it's the richness of the atmosphere you create in the room. And I believe that can happen in any room. I prefer to have sunlight. I prefer to have a place people walk and so on. And I prefer the two-day meetings mostly, though we've made it work otherwise, where people break bread and they talk to each other and they get to know each other. We give, or we do a little icebreaker and allows them to get to know each other. I don't know if you know, I'm just going to insert this here about future search. I interviewed Sandra Janoff. Uh, it's a process to, to find common ground. But I like their healthy meeting conditions, you know, that they uh, articulate specifically. And they always involve two nights of sleep. They've really, yeah. <laughs> they've really discovered that people seem to be much more productive and constructive when they have two nights of soak, what they call soak time, you know, to yeah. be dealing with the problem. Well, depending on who you're gathering, we can't always get people to give that time. So this is what we're up against. Normally, once we've done our homework, we ask people to commit for a year and a half to two. Anything more than that scares them. That usually scares them. But when they get in a rhythm meeting every three months or so, um, they usually find the meetings worthwhile, fascinating. They're learning a lot. They're well facilitated. And how long do each of these meetings tend to be? Like, Well, we most our projects meet a day and a half. Okay. So we have people come in maybe the night before, so as we do a dinner, mm-hmm. and they meet for a day and a half, and then they can travel home. We did a project on the federal budget process, and everybody was local, and those tended to be six-hour meetings in D.C. once a month. It was much more rapid fire, and we were still able to build the trust in the room, and then we'd have breakfast in between for people who miss meetings and brief them. So the larger scope is for us, it's usually a minimum of two years to make a big difference, although we can abbreviate that in an urgent situation. We can make it go much more quickly. What does uh, making a big difference mean to you? What does that look like? So it's complicated. Each project's different. Those that are legislative means that the people around the table join hands and they fight for legislative goals. They themselves do not control whether a divided Congress will enact them, but in my history, uh, uh, the projects that led to the founding convergence was work on health care coverage that many people saw as laying the groundwork for an expansion of child health and eventually the Affordable Care Act. Uh, not everyone on our table agreed with the Affordable Care Act, but the relationships formed probably helped make that conversation be more productive. In the case of education, uh, they decided it wasn't public policy, and now that group we've spun off is working with what they call learning environments in schools all around the country, and they're building a movement, (laughs) working with a center out of Harvard and other places where they're developing ideas and spreading it and training and connecting people who are sharing this 
vision of a learner-centered education. Um, in the case of our work on nutrition and wellness, we had food companies and public health groups. And a lot of it was to help food companies um, sort of um, create a market for healthier food. So the, the outputs there had to do really more with what some uh, retail stores, how they marketed and presented their foods, and even convenience stores. So it could be market-based solutions. So each, uh, we usually have a pretty good idea going in, whether it's a public policy or not, but the stakeholders right. determine that. Right. And the interview process may have us narrowed down. I thought when we did nutrition and wellness, well, maybe we're going to take on the farm bill <laughs> and sugar subsidies, but that's not where the energy was. Right. But so for us, just to be clear, we're a dialogue leading to action model. I like to say a dialogue leading impact. We can't always guarantee that, but here's what we do. We gather the people who have the collective knowledge, experience, and influence that if they can reach agreement, can move the dial forward. And if it's legislative, we want groups that are powerful with influence in Congress, but we also like to make sure there are other voices at the table to make sure that we are not missing something by just gathering influential heady, heavy hitters. We want to be grounded in the reality of people's lives. And in some of our projects, we really have people at the community level or, or we do special things to hear the lived experience of incarcerated folks or people who are struggling to find jobs and so on. So we try to incorporate that. But I think the larger narrative is this, is we <laughs> frame an issue, uh, we do our research, we gather stakeholders, we build out concentric circles of interviews and get to know people, we assemble the best table we can, we convene them in dialogue with skill facilitation and ground rules usually for a year and a half or so. In the course of that, we try to put together a plan, of, uh, an action plan they all share, we'll participate in, and then we will help steward that for a while and either we'll hand it off to somebody or we'll run out of money or we'll create, as we did with education, a whole new organization will come out of this to move the ideas forward. Um, I'd say at a minimum, at a time when people don't talk to each other well, the people we get to come to our tables who are very, very diverse politically and otherwise, uh, have an amazing experience of seeing and understanding people and at a minimum, we're lowering temperatures, yeah. the most important people. And at the best end, we're having a real impact on the issues we care about. How are you feeling about the whole experiment? Are you feeling excited? Are you feeling frustrated? Uh, yeah, sort of where's your temperature check about the whole undertaking? You know, most days excited. Um, I'm also sobered by how difficult this is. We don't control just because we get people to, yes, and get to people agreement that things actually happen in the world necessarily. It's also difficult just to be honest about this, is to have the resources for us to sustain the efforts at the level we'd want to do. You know, we're always uh, selling and so on, and we, you know, like every nonprofit, hope for a breakthrough on that. But I, I think the idea is right. We have attracted amazing people to our board, some of whom have been through our experiences. Uh, some people call it the most transformative professional experience of their lives. We know we're onto something powerful, and we know we're kind of pioneers and cutting edge, and we think this will catch on. Everywhere I go now, we had a dinner for 40 people in Houston a couple weeks ago. Oh, we need a convergence in Houston. We need one. Well, actually, we we're starting to try to do one statewide in California now. Yeah, exciting. For you, that's great. It's great. So people see the need, yeah. and it's, it's not easy to actually create an entity, that, which is a, sort of a backbone organization, uh, to do this, to have the funding and to have the infrastructure to be successful. But almost wherever we go, people say, this makes sense. We could use this. My God, yeah, if only we could talk to each other better. You know, we spent so much time fighting and underneath it all, maybe we don't disagree as much as we thought. So going back to the idea of containers, uh, I mean, do you, do you feel like our system is broken <laughs> of representation? I mean, I think for, for many of us who are not in Washington and who are looking at the whole thing, it just seems like, oh, my God, it's so polarized. And I can't tell you how often I hear people say, oh, system is broken. I'm sure you've heard that. Yeah. Is it, is it broken or is it that we need to be incorporating many more containers like this for people to really come together, see the humanity in each other, actually have real conversations and narrow the gap of polarization? So it's interesting. I've had the honor of participating in some various meetings the last couple of years of people studying democracy. And, and so we're a piece of the puzzle. In fact, uh, it's public. We've just been invited to work with a 26-member bipartisan caucus in the House called the Bipartisan Working Group, 13 Republicans, 13 Democrats, trying to help them 
see issues from all sides and potentially find common ground. And my experience, and I haven't worked directly on Capitol Hill in a while, though, is it's good people caught in bad systems. Uh-huh. Now, there are all sorts of students of democracy who can tell you much more about the fact that the primary system, which originally was a white hat kind of reform, tends to elect people who are more divided ideologically. There's been changes in Congress, and now there's a new select committee in the House on modernization where people are concerned about the fact that more and more it's leadership that sets the tones, uh, the tone of what happens and the direction, Uh, the loss of earmarks, which is, you know, theoretically a very good reform in terms of uh, how government should function, but they've lost the grist of of deal-making and so on. And I would add to that that people do not have the same kind of relationships. The members of Congress themselves talk about it. Sustain interaction. They go home too many weekends to fundraise. The pressures to fundraise are enormous. So that gets, even if you don't necessarily think people are bought by the money, and a lot of people think uh, money does control people's votes too much. Just the time they spend fundraising and the focus on it means that they don't necessarily build relationships with trust. But I, I'm getting to a larger point, which is even those who are prone to deal making, if they think they're going to get primary from the left or from the right, it's a disincentive to go ahead and do the kinds of things we're talking about. So even if we were to, to give them a great process to interact with, if they're worried about reelection, because um, fervid people who have a lot of money are supporting people to be, you know, true to the, their party line and actually look skeptically at people who cooperate, uh, then it's tougher. It's tougher on these people who sit in Congress. So I think we're a piece of the puzzle. I think we can take it so far. But I think there have to be a restoration. The incentives of working with each other across partisan lines doesn't mean you are going to lose your seat in Congress. So there are other factors, in, and we mentioned earlier the role of the media, fanning the flames, and, and now with everything in the public out and open, everybody can see every vote, and people get measured and attacked for everything. And it used to be you could do a lot more things with everyone knowing your every vote and every move, and you still got elected based upon your character and your, the general tone of your leadership, and not every vote was scrutinized the way it is now. I know I get frustrated just as a citizen and a facilitator because I have brought together so many large conflicting groups in processes that, you know, once you set it up in the right way and you let people go at it, uh, if you get the right people in the room and you create the right container, you really can narrow, you can come up with a lot of common ground. And so sometimes I look at our our legal system, our adversary system, our, you know, polarization in Congress. And I think, oh my God, this process, while I think it was created with good intent, is not one that's really designed at this point for people being able to actually come together and reach agreement on things that we need to, we need to agree on. Um, I agree. And there's a lot of people working on this from a lot of angles. Thank God, Republicans and Democrats see the dysfunction they see the rise in hatred. Frankly, the polls show, I just read an article and I actually had, dinner with the other night, a, a columnist for the National Review, who's talked about people gone so far that they not only disagree, they don't want their children to marry outside their party, and they actually think the views of others in the other party are not even legitimate. And I, you know, I do think the current administration's at a certain special element that goes beyond the normal conservative liberal uh, kinds of concerns people have. But we've gotten to that point where people just... Uh, can't even necessarily entertain that people who disagree with them might have a really legitimate point of view. And that's sad. And then you become, you know, as they say, more tribal. You identify with people you agree with. You tend to listen to only those. And sometimes you even overstate uh, the flaws of people you oppose. And that's really dangerous. Yeah. The only way to break that down is through human relationships, I think. Direct contact, real conversation. So the misconceptions and the stereotypes don't get out of hand. I think I mentioned to you, I I feel actually quite confident as a facilitator that I can bring two groups that are demographically completely the same, and I can create total tribal conflict in one, intergroup polarization, and a real coming together in the other. And so much of it has to do with the kind of climate you're creating among them. And I, I do have a problem with our current administration. I think there's been a creation of a climate that is really creating a lot of identity group polarization that is, um, like you say, people start demonizing each other in ways that 
is a little scary, actually. It's uh, it's and I and I think it goes far beyond. If you got those people calmed down and in a different kind of environment, they'd probably find that their zone of agreement is enormous, um, yeah. or a lot bigger than they think. Because at the end of the day, I think we're all a lot more alike than we are different. So, yeah. Rob, we're running towards the end of our time here. I wonder um, if there's anything you want to make sure you have said in this conversation that we haven't actually gotten in here. Well, not, nothing earth-shattering comes to mind. I think you've done a skillful job trying to bring out what I'd most want to say. But there's, I, I guess I'd, just this thought from your last comments come to mind is that this notion of being polarized isn't just about the election of 2016. There were people when uh, George W. Bush was elected who, you know, were so angry and upset and um, didn't want to have him have any victories. And the same happened when President Obama got elected. And so it goes deeper than that. I do think the current administration has everyone somewhat confused because it certainly brought a very different style. But for me, there were honest differences of agreement. I felt that George W. Bush said he was a uniter, not a divider. I just didn't think he was skillful in his means. Mm -hmm. The same with President Obama. I think he could have done a lot better, had better skillful means to implement what he thought was a purple nation. Now other things are going on where issues of facts and integrity and so on actually royal the ability to have real conversations. But most people, including those who support the president, I think are decent people who want good answers, who want the world to be nicer and kinder and gentler. They want people to be able to talk to each Get other. to survive. <laughs> yeah, this is what, how they raise their children. And, and I think we have to call ourselves back to fundamental values and look at what are the systemic causes that are sort of inherently creating division unnecessarily. There's, there's systemic causes that go beyond what we do. But I think part of the antidote is what you and I practice, which is, the way to create that breakthrough, that have people stay committed to something larger than just winning their own point of view is when they know someone they love and trust and they disagree with that person, that person's making points that they never thought of, then you have an opening to create something that's more unifying and more wise potentially in how we solve problems. And um, that's very much what we want to do. And I, I guess the one thing I would add is that we've added to our mission that we not only do these projects we've described, big national issues, healthcare, education, incarceration, mobility. But we now also feel like we need to support other people, those we might inspire to try to be collaborative. We're developing a capacity to help people do the kind of work and learn about our methodology. So we'd be very happy to hear from people who might want to learn more and share what we know and potentially help them work in a way consistent with what we do. It's not just national. It could be done at community level, city level, state level international level. I want to ask you about that globally. Are you seeing similar initiatives happening in any other parts of the planet that you're aware of? Uh, I do not know too many firsthand, although I've, I've been actually introduced to a few folks in Scotland and other places who, you know, there is a lot of people working on the collaboration issue, and I think you probably know more about that than I do. And I think we all need to <laughs> become uh, something more of a critical mass to reinforce mm -hmm. each other's messages and successes and mm -hmm. bring it to the world, at least as another option to how to deal with the, the deep problems we all face. So back to what you call yourself, do you, do you ever, I mean, I think I said to you, oh, you're mediating policy. And I think you didn't like, you, you weren't that crazy about that. Yeah, crazy. Mediating tends to speak about more like splitting the difference between the different interests. Well, it depends. I, I mean, in some circles, like to me, not, not so much, but, I, well, it, but maybe it really does have that kind of Well, mediation also is often when there's parties in dispute, you're mediating it. Yeah, I yeah. think ours is more of a creative, collaborative problem-solving process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually multi-stakeholder gets thrown in, but those are a lot of big words. Right. And you're right. I, I'd like to get a, a new name <laughs> uh, easier for people to understand. We will have to think about what we're going to call this episode. <laughs> and I have one last question for you. I, you know doing these podcast interviews and thinking about what is needed to build peace on the planet, I, um, I really have felt, uh, I've, I've become to feel that empowering women and getting gender right on the planet is really critical for a number of different reasons. And of course, I also work as a neutral, you know, I mean, I come into systems, I am a neutral facilitator. And, and yet I think sometimes when you have people that have uneven power levels of power, you kind of have to support the people that don't have the same level of power. And I see you shaking your head, sounds like you agree yeah. with me around that. Yeah. And I, I'm, 
I'm curious how you deal with that with convergence. Like when you're bringing people together, probably they don't all have the same level of power. Um, they can't possibly all have the same level of power. When things are said and done, each has a different ability to implement ideas. You're a president of a teacher's union, they can do a lot more than probably to move the country than maybe just a principal of a local school, right? But I think we work really hard that at least in our room, every voice counts. And really the quality of what you present, I'd like to think, and I think it is true, that everybody feels like their voice is being brought out. If someone hasn't been speaking, our facilitators look for that. And frankly, no matter what your background, I've found people from who don't have highfalutin positions, if they got brand ideas, people are listening. Yeah. And that's what our commitment needs to be. And I agree with you also, We, while we do have to have a table that has the collective influence to make a difference, we also believe that the experience of various people in society don't have to all be big mucky muck influential. So we try to open the doors to make sure voices that might not normally be heard, be heard. Not every project can do that perfectly. And we can't make that our sole goal. And I'm also with you on the gender balance. Um, I think it's really important. As a rule, I think the women are more relational. And I think the uh, presence of, of good gender balance, I think really helps the room function better. Yeah, so I think some of the research seems to suggest. Um, anyway, I think we are out of time. And uh, I um, really thank you so much for your um, time. If people wanted to reach you or learn more about Convergence, what should they do? Well, thanks for the question. Uh, our website is www.convergencepolicy.org. Uh, you can find me on there. Uh, certainly just write to us through that. They can always uh, find my Email if they need to, it's rob at convergencepolicy.org. We're happy to hear from people. We're a small but mighty group, and we'd love to talk to anybody who takes an interest in this work. And I want to just thank you again for the opportunity to be on this podcast with you. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's, uh, it just seems super important. Thanks very much. So as always, thanks for listening. You can uh, find Rob's contact information and his bio on the site, susancoleman.global. And there as well, you could leave a comment if you'd like to about the episode. We really like to see your comments. And as always, we really like you to give us shout outs on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you are interested, we're developing some great content about women negotiation and power. If you're interested in being on that list and getting updates, you can find a place to subscribe on the site, susancoleman.global. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll catch you again with another great episode. <music>